0: Our Father, we are um, a people gathered to sing just indeed what we have sung, that you alone are worthy. Um, some of us bear the scars of of granting worthiness to other things that ultimately bit us. We assigned value to things that really had none, but we did so think it did. We, um, we were foolish enough to believe that. That we could correct or construct a life that would be so honorable, so pleasing, so full of, of prosperity that we would fill that deep longing in our hearts. And that vacuum that we know, that all of us know is there, could then be occupied by all the silly stuff we crammed into it. And then one by one, O God, we saw how empty those things were and uh, discovered that you have created us for something entirely different, that you created us for worship, that uh, you have asked of your people that their highest expression of faith be that of worship, where we come and lay aside uh, all of those selfish interests and selfish pursuits, so that we kind of can fix our attention, if it's only but for an hour, on the God who made us and then went on to redeem us in Christ Jesus. Father, I think of the people who a week from tomorrow who was sitting in their family rooms, opening their presents and ooing and eyeing over over a new tie and a new telephone and new jewelry, and new clothes. And all the while, their empty hearts are crying out for God, not really even knowing what it is that they're missing. So, Father, indeed, we come to, to sing with great commitment. You alone, O oh God. You alone are worthy. And we pray that all of our actions and choices our behavior might reflect that we be, we believe at the base of our souls that there is only one who is worthy for sacrifice and praise, the triune, thrice-holy God. Our Father, uh, we do face a uh, frenetic week in front of us, and I pray that your people might discover that in their freneticism that uh, there is something far more meaningful to them than getting 15% off at Goldsmiths. And I pray, O God, that what they might find if they dig to the base of their souls is a rock. A rock on which they have built their spiritual houses. That though winds come and rains fall and uh, waters rise, that their spiritual edifice will stand in the midst of all difficulty. But Father, do not allow us Do not allow your people to miss the great holiness of the day that approaches us. Might our gifts reflect, O God, that we think you, that you alone are worthy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Open your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm about to do something with this text that um, I, uh, I don't think you should ever do. Um, but I'm doing it in view of the season. And um, what I want to do is I, I want to read verses 5 through 11 first. And then I want to come back and read, read verses 1 through 4. And that's not to say, that's not to suggest in any way that I'm about to make, improve upon the logic of the scriptures. Please don't hear me say that. I just think for our purposes this morning, it would be more helpful if I read it that way. So if you'll just stay with me as um, I'm reading from Philippians chapter 2 at verse 5, and then we'll go to verse 1 after 11. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, before I go to verse one, I just wanna show you what is going on in the mind of the apostle. He um, is in a subject that he's that he's trying to communicate to the people of God that he thinks is fairly significant. And um, in the midst of communicating that subject, he breaks forth into this, this mention of the incarnation. That's in verses 5 through 11 that I just read. He's, in his mind, the thing, I think, in his mind, the thing (laughs) that he's discussing in verses 1 through 4 can best be illustrated if he made a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. This is a very controversial passage, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, the verses 5 through 11. It's called a canonic passage. If you've ever studied it, it's a... a, um, It has to do with Jesus being equal with God and having made himself of no reputation. That's the the controversy. But you know what that that alludes to. It alludes to his birth. uh, Leaving his home in glory. Uh, You know the song that we sing out of the ivory palaces into this world of woe. What can make my Savior go? Well, that's an allusion to him leaving glory and becoming incarnate. Now... Now I want you to notice what it is that prompted this allusion to the Incarnation that Paul is dealing with as he writes to the Philippian church. Verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And, as he is pleading with the people of God to do that, he bursts into this reference to the incarnation. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. I want to begin this morning by reading you a a story, and I've read it again and again and again, and I've timed it. It's a lengthy story, and it takes between seven and eight minutes to read, depending on how dramatic I get. (coughs) So, the more drama, uh, the more uh, interesting is the story. Maybe not, but just kind of bear with me, and and, um, it's a nice story. It's not one that's going to evoke any tears from anybody, but it's a nice story, and um, one I thought had some application for the morning. Near the crest of the hill, he felt the rear wheels of the car spin for a half a second, and he felt a flash of the unreasonable irritability that had been plaguing him lately. He said a bit grimly, good thing it didn't snow more than an inch or two. We'd be in in trouble if it had. His wife was driving, she often did, so that he could make notes for a sermon or catch up on his endless correspondence by dictating into the tape recorder he had, had built into the car. Now she, looked out, now she looked out at the woods and the fields gleaming in the morning sunlight. It's pretty, though, and Christmassy. We haven't had a white Christmas like this in years. He gave her an amused and affectionate glance. You always see the best side of things, don't you, my love? Well, after hearing you urge umpteen congregations to do precisely that, Arnold Barclay smiled, and some of the lines of tension and fatigue went out of his face. Remember the bargain we made 20 years ago? I'd do the preaching, and you'd do the practicing. Her mouth curved faintly, I remember. They came to a crossroads and he found that after all these years, he still remembered the sign, Littlefield, one mile. He said, how's the time? She glanced at the diamond watch on her wrist, his present to her this year, a little after 10. He leaned forward and switched on the radio. In a moment, his own voice, strong and resonant, filled the car, preaching a Christmas sermon prepared and recorded weeks before. He listened to a, a sentence or two, then smiled sheepishly and turned it off. Just wanted to hear how I sounded. You sound fine, Mary Barkley said, you always do. They passed the farmhouse, the new smoke, the, the new snow sparkling like diamonds on the roof, the Christmas wreath gay against the front door. Who lived there, he asked. Peterson, wasn't it? No, Johansson. That's right, his wife said. Eric Johansson, remember the night he made you hold the lantern while the calf was born? Do I ever? He rubbed his forehead wearily. About this, he uh, rubbed his forehead uh, wearily. About this new television proposition, Mary. What do you think? It would be an extra load, I know, but I'd be reaching an enormous audience—the biggest. She put her hand on his arm. Darling, it's Christmas Day. Can't we talk about it later? Why, sure, he said. But something in him was offended all the all the same. The television proposal was important. Why, in fifteen minutes, he would reach ten times as many people as Saint Paul had reached in a lifetime. He said, how many people did the Littlefield Church hold, Mary? About a hundred, wasn't it? Ninety-six, his wife said to be exact. Ninety-six, he gave a rueful laugh. Quite a change of pace. It was that all right. It was years since he had preached in anything but metropolitan churches. The Littlefield Parish had been the beginning. Now on Christmas morning, he was going back. Back for an hour or two to stand in the little pulpit where he had preached his first hesitant, fumbling sermon 20 years ago. He let his head fall back against the seat and closed his eyes the decision to go back had not really been his really it had been mary's she handled all his appointments screening the innumerable invitations to preach and speak a month ago she had come she had come to him there was a, cre- a request she said for him to go back to littlefield and preach a sermon on christmas morning littlefield he said incredulous what about the washington invitation he had been asked to preach at a congregation that would, that would he knew include senators and cabinet members <coughs> We haven't answered it yet, she said. We could drive to Littlefield on Christmas morning if we got up early enough. He had stared at her. You mean you think we ought to go back there? She had looked back at him calmly. That's up to you, Arnold. But he knew what she wanted him to say. Making a decision wasn't so hard at the moment. He thought wearily, not resenting afterward, that was the difficult part. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad. The church would be horribly overcrowded. The congregation would be mostly farmers. But the car stopped. He opened his eyes. They were at the church all right, there it sat by the side of the road just as it always had. If anything, it looked smaller than he remembered it. Around it, the fields stretched away whitened and broken to the neighboring farmhouses, but there were no cars. There was no crowd. There was no sign of anyone. The church was shuttered and silent. He looked at Mary bewildered. She did not seem surprised. She pushed open the door. Let's go inside, shall we? I still have a key. The church was cold, standing in the icy gloom. He could see his breath steam in the gray light. He said, and his voice sounded strange, where is everybody? You said there was a request. There was a request, Mary said, from me. She moved forward slowly until she was standing by the pulpit. Arnold, she said, the finest sermon I ever heard you preach was right here in this church. It was your first Christmas sermon. We hadn't been married long. You didn't know our first baby was on the way, but I did. Maybe that's why I remember it so well. I remember what you said so well. You said that God had tried every way possible to get through the people. He tried prophets and miracles and revelations and nothing worked. So then he said, I'll send them something that they can't fail to understand. I'll send them the simplest and yet the most wonderful thing in all my creation. I'll send them a baby. Do you remember that? He nodded wordlessly. Well, she said, I heard that they had no minister here now. So I knew they wouldn't be having a service this morning. And I thought, well, I thought it might be good for, for both of us. If you could just preach that sermon again right here where your ministry began. I just thought, her voice trailed off, but he knew what she meant. He knew what she was trying to tell him, although she was too loyal and too kind to say it in words, that he'd gotten away from the sources of his strength, that as success had come to him, as his reputation had grown larger, some things in him had grown smaller, the selflessness, the humility, the most important things of all. He stood there silent, seeing himself with a terrifying clarity, the pride, the ambition, the hunger for larger and larger audiences. Not for the glory of God, but for the glory of Arnold Bar- Barclay. He clenched his fist, feeling panic grip him, a sense of terror and guilt unlike anything he'd ever known. Then faintly underneath the panic, something else stirred. He glanced around the little church. She was right, Mary was right, and perhaps it wasn't too late. Perhaps here, now, he could rededicate himself. Abruptly, he stripped off his overcoat, tossed it across the back of a pew, He reached out and took both of Mary's hands. He heard himself laugh, an eager boyish laugh. We'll do it. We'll do it just the way we used to. You open the shutters. that That was your job. Remember, I'll start the furnace. We'll have a Christmas service just for the two of us. I'll preach that sermon all for you. She turned quickly to the nearest window, raised it, began fumbling with the catch that held the shutters. He opened the door that led to the cellar steps. Down to the frigid basement, he found the furnace squatting as black and malevolent as ever. He flung open the, the iron door. No fire was laid, but along the wall, wood was stacked and kindling in newspapers. He began to crumple papers and thrust them into the furnace, heedless of the soot and blackened his fingers. Blackened his fingers. <clears throat> Overhead, he heard the sound that made him pause. Mary was trying the wheezy old melodeon. Ring the bell, too, he shouted up, to the, up the stairs. We might as well do the job right. He heard, he heard her laugh. A moment later, high in the belfry, the bell began to ring. Its tone was as clear and resonant as ever, and the sound brought back a flood of memories, the baptisms, the burials, the Sunday dinners at the old farmhouses, the honesty and the brusqueness and simple goodness of the people. He stood there listening until the bell was silent. Then he struck a match and held it to the newspaper, smoke curled reluctantly. He reached up, adjusted the old damper, tried again, this time a tongue of flame flickered. For perhaps five minutes he watched it, hovering over it, blowing it. Then he was sure that it was kindled, he went back up the cellar steps. The church was a blaze of sunlight where the, window, where the window glass was clear. Millions of dust motes whirled and danced. Where there were panes of stained glass, the rays fell on the old floor in pools of ruby and topaz and amethyst. Mary was standing at the church door, Arnold, and she said, Come here. He went and stood beside her. After the darkness of the cellar, the sun on the snow was so bright that he couldn't see anything. Look, she said in a whisper. They're coming. Cupping his hands around his eyes, he stared out across the glistening whiteness and he saw that she was right. They were coming across the fields, down the road, some on foot, some in cars. They were coming. He knew not to hear him, not to hear any preacher, however great. They were coming because it was Christmas Day and this was their church and its bell was calling them they were coming because they wanted someone to give them the ancient message to tell them the good news. He stood there in his arm around his wife's shoulders and the, soot, and the soot black on his face and overflowing happiness in his heart. Merry Christmas. And thank you, darling. You know, that, that story obviously got to me. Um, but in case you're sitting here thinking, What's he about to say? It really doesn't have to do with me. It doesn't have to do with a preacher who's out of control and and gotten himself um, in a mess of pride and arrogance. You know, I've done that too. But really, ladies and gentlemen, it has to do with you. This is not about me this morning. It's about you. Um, It's about an issue that I think the story reflects and our text is all about. Our text, ladies and gentlemen, is not a story, it's not an illustration. It's a plea, it's a summons. It's a plea for the people of God to walk in humility. And I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the first thing that you see about Christmas ought not be wise men and shepherds in a manger and certainly not a new watch. The first thing that you ought to see that I think was that controlled Paul's thinking as he wrote this passage. He was he was pleading with the people of God to be humble, and the thing that popped into his mind was the incarnation. The incarnation. That above everything else that it was, it was a grand and glorious display of indescribable, infinite humility. It wasn't so much about celebration, it was about the wonder that God, in His rich grace and glory, would empty Himself so that He could take on flesh, so that He would come and die for folks like us. And the first thing that stood out to Paul about that, ladies and gentlemen, was the infinite humility that was on display. And then he pleads with us. He pleads with the people of God and says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And that mind, ladies and gentlemen, was a mind of humility. And there's not a one in a hundred of us that know much about that. Including your pastor, folks. Um, if you don't understand what I'm saying, then I'm 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 an idiot. I've tried to be as abundantly clear and untheological as I can. Philippians two is a reference to the incarnation, to the birth of Christ. But what is it that Paul is using the incarnation to do for the people of Philippi? He's using the incarnation to plead with them plead with them to understand something and to grow into the likeness of Christ and that would be in humility. I'll read you a quote from Madeline Lingle. The virgin birth has never been a major stumbling block in my, in my struggle with Christianity. It's far less mind-boggling than the power of all creation stooping so low has to become one of us. Folks, what is the carnation? What is it but heavenly humility? Heavenly humility packed into a body. What, What is the incarnation but humility nailed to a cross? The humility of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know this. You hear me well. The humility of Jesus Christ is Are you listening? The humility of Jesus Christ is our salvation. It is wrapped up in the fact that he emptied himself. And our lack of that, of humility, is is a sufficient explanation for all of our failings, for all of our defeats, for all of our carnality, gang. Um, in our text this morning, you and I are being called. Actually, you're being commanded to in the imperative. Let this mind be in you. It's not a. It's not a. Um, an imitation, It's a command. Let this mind be in you. You and I are being called to emulate. That humility. But we've gotten so far away from it. We don't know where to begin. Ain't that true? How, Jimmy? How would you pull it off? If I if I'm gonna take any of this to heart, how, how would I how would I begin? Well, I want to I mention four things which really aren't that bright as we close. But I, I need to tell you something first before we get to the, the how-to. And, really, and, I, and I say to you, really, this is part of the how-to. But there's something wrong, ladies and gentlemen, about even our pursuit of whatever little humility we might have. Um, we have been taught, I think, or we picked it up somewhere, that the strength of our humility is to be found in self-condemnation. That is, the secret to humility is our awareness of how bad we are. And as long as we continue to pound ourselves as to how bad we are and we can humble ourselves with some kind of self-denunciation and self-condemnation, that will produce humility. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it will fail every time. And I'm here to tell you that 100% of you, I, I predict 100% 100% of you, if if, if if this is even a pursuit of ours, are doing it that way. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that I fear in the Christian pulpit these days that dot the land is that Christianity is being turned into nothing more than a bunch of moralism strung together. That is, Jesus was humble, okay, you go be humble. Ladies and gentlemen, that's nothing but moralism. And Christianity is not a bunch of moralisms lined up on a sheet of paper. And if I go do this, and if I go do that, and if I go do the other, I'll be moral. I'll be I'll be a Christian. And I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, the idea that the, that the key and the route to humility is in self-condemnation is just another one of those. Okay, let me go think how rotten I am, and then I can produce a, a, a smidgen of humility for a nanosecond. And tell me, my friend and my brother and sister in Christ, is it working? It isn't, is it? Nope. Come on now, if you lie about this, you'll lie about other things. It ain't working. But here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. Humility is not to be sought that way. Being occupied with self can never free us from the tyranny of self. Ladies and gentlemen, the way that we become, the way that we approach humility is not by being overwhelmed with how wicked we are. And we are wicked. And we ought to be overwhelmed. But the way that you come to humility is being overwhelmed by the magnitude of the grace of God for sinners. And the more we discover how magnanimous is His grace, the more we are brought to the place of saying, I am nothing. He is all. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not sin. Our sin that is our number one humbler is grace. Grace in all of its richness and beauty. Grace that has found out me. Gang, humility doesn't follow my being overcome And reminding myself every time I pray, oh, I'm such a rotten sinner. Well, that's the truth. We all know that. The way that we discover humility is by discovering again that that grace that is so... that could only be produced by the God that you and I worship, a grace, it is a grace that extends to sinners like us. And we are... grace. Ladies and gentlemen, I say to you that humility is something that is infinitely deeper than contrition, just being sorry for my sin. It is being, humility is being occupied, not with sin, but being occupied with the loveliness and the beauty of our God. the more abundant is our experience of grace. I will tell you, the more intense is our consciousness of our sin. But it's not sin, but it's God's grace that constantly reminds him of what a sinner he was and is. (coughs) And that I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, is what will begin the process of bringing us into a posture of humility. But I'm still left with the question of how. Let me mention four little things and I hope they will be helpful to you and then I'll close up with something else. Ladies and gentlemen, humility is an ongoing choice. It is an ongoing choice to credit God, not not yourself, for their natural gifts and then to use those gifts in His service. Ladies and gentlemen, I, you know, I hope I'm wrong here. Let, let me just, um, mm. let me, this is a simple mundane kind of ex, uh, uh, example. When's the last time you prayed over a meal? H- have we even taken those for granted? What I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is, you know, it's such a rarity. I mean, people say, you know, I get waited on at restaurants all the time, and I pray over my meal, and the little, you know, um, waitress will come, go, well, we don't always see people praying, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to you know, interrupt you. <laughs> I think, why? Because you see, and, and by the way, please, I am not holding myself up as a model, but I can tell you this. I, I can't look at you and say, be like me, but I can say this. If you want to chase after it, you can be like me because I can tell you of a truth that is my heart's greatest longing. You can believe that or not. But humility is a conscious choice of giving credit to God and not taking it from Him. Even for those natural gifts that you have, that ability to turn a buck that degree that you've got, that skill that is so valued. Secondly, I I encourage you, ladies and gentlemen, this is kind of a a symbolic kind of thing, but take the last seat at the table, ladies and gentlemen. You know what that means? You know this story, it's found a couple of places, but it's found in Luke chapter 14. And Jesus says when you enter a room and there's been a banquet set, don't don't go to the head of the table. Take one of those chairs in the back because, man, it would be awful if somebody had to come, to you, come up to you and say, listen, you're in the wrong chair, you need to move down. You need to take the last seat of the table and, and maybe somebody will come to you and say, hey, why don't you move up? But my friends, take. Oh, do you know anything about taking the last seat at the table? Do we as the people of God who say we're related to this incarnate humility do we know something about taking the last seat at the table? The, um, the meanest seat, not just the one that's left. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the only proof that we're going to have that we've got some measure of humility before God is our humility before men. So for heaven's sakes, take the last seat at the table develop a whole mentality about every situation I'm in, I'm gonna take the last seat at the table. I'm gonna walk into the office and I'm gonna take the last seat at the table. I'm gonna gonna be in my family and I'm gonna take the last seat at the table. I'm gonna live a life that has this one of its motifs. He always takes the last seat at the table. He always is putting himself in a posture or herself in a posture of being in the last seat at the table. Because ladies and gentlemen, if you knew my sin, You'd want me to be at the last seat of the table. I'll tell you another thing that humility will do for you, ladies and gentlemen. You'll stop evaluating other people. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what your sin is, but I know what mine is. And that's enough to keep me busy. I don't need to know yours. And I certainly don't need to evaluate yours. Third, take every opportunity of humbling yourself before God and man. Every opportunity that arises. Um, you see a, a humble man is free from all of those concerns about self-protection. Um, a humble man, a humble woman is free from all the concerns that, that people might think something else of her or him. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, this is not going to come on its own. It must become that the object of a special desire, a, a special prayer, special practice. It, it must become the chief thing that we're asking of God. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, and and I say this really based on what I read in Philippians two that humility is the is the mother of all or the mother of all virtue. The first thing displayed on the part of Jesus Christ that led him to do what he did was that he emptied himself. And did you know that the Bible says that the one safeguard of the soul is humility? Grace is promised to the humble. Did you know that? The the one safeguard of our souls. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, anything that you're going through, anything that has happened to you, nothing is in vain that tends to humble us. Somebody told me the other day that that, um, I guess it's the New York Stock Exchange is down 20%. Good. Good. Anything that tends to humble us is good. Ladies and gentlemen, my plea is that we will make humility the most essential step in our discipleship because the holiest man will always be the humblest. And then one other thing I would suggest to you that you got some people that drive you crazy that annoy you. Look on every one of them as a means by which God can make you more humble. They're good to be here. They're, they're, they're good to have in your life because they can humble us. Now, I've got to say one other thing and I'm finished. You notice, ladies and gentlemen, that I am not addressing pride. I'm about to. But I'm promoting humility. But you know what the enemy of humility is. You know what the opposite is. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, and you get this, pride must die in you. Pride must die in us or nothing of heaven can live in us. Nothing is so dangerous to our souls, to our marriages, to our futures, to our church, to our, nothing is so dangerous. Nothing so natural, nothing so insidious, nothing so hidden is our own pride. And pride, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, renders faith impossible. Because pride trusts in the arm of the flesh. Learn to hate it wherever it exists in you. And boy, there's a a number of ways it exists in me. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I want to suggest to you as I close that nothing can redeem us but the restoration of lost humility. So what we see in this Christmas season is a reminder that Jesus came to bring humility back to the earth and to make us a partaker in it with him and by so doing save us Save us from our blasted selves. Because the first thing, the first thing that must happen if we are ever going to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is that we must humble ourselves. A word that is almost repugnant in the mouths of the majority. The great struggle for eternal life, ladies and gentlemen, lies. In the strife that we see existing between strife, between pride and humility, that is the strife of the soul. My one need is humility. It's yours too. Because in the disappearance of self, we're all going to get a new vision of who God is and what he's done in grace to save us. I hope you like my story about Arnold Beasley. It just reminded me that I hope one of the things that happens for me and for the congregation that I happen to be privileged to be a part of is that Christmas reminds us of the great absence of and need for humility think about that our father I, I do pray that that uh, what we find here in Philippians 2 and what we find all over your word is a is a um, a clear rendering a clear statement a clear summons command motive entreaty to walk humbly before our God and then, The proof of that coming as we walk humbly before each other. That we find ourselves goring and taking the last seat at the table. That we find those nuisances to be things that do humble us and remind us of the need. That we find, oh God, those things that in which we failed. That every event, every experience, every occurrence that is something that we find unpleasant Can have the purpose in us of making us more like Jesus because it humbles us. And then, Father, I pray that your people will not walk out of here forgetting that if we're ever going to be humble men and women, it is going to come as we are overcome with grace. Our sin is a given, it is your grace that will humble us. To that end, oh God, might this Christmas produce wonderful times of family celebration, but might it also produce primarily a newfound desire on the part of the people of God to walk humbly, to have the mind of Christ who humbled himself a servant to the point of death. And for what reason? To save me and the rest of the brothers and sisters in Christ who sit here. Oh God, why is it that success has so clouded our vision? Clear our eyes, O God, so that we can see rightly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.